trouble remembering what all we looked at before. But um, let's say together our couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 60, and then I'll pray for us. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has dawned upon you. For behold, darkness covers the land, deep gloom enshrouds the people. But over you the Lord will rise, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will stream to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawning. Dear Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your light that shines into our dark world through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you, Lord Jesus, are the light of the world. And so now, as we look at your written word, Holy Scriptures, would you cause your light, the light of the truth of who you are and what it is that you've done for us and what your plan is for us for the rest of our lives and for all eternity. Lord, would you um, reveal that to us during this time right now? Would you give us great hope and courage as we go forward um, and as we do whatever it is that you've set in front of us today, this week, and this month? We ask this for your glory's sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so a little bit of context. Anybody remember what we were looking at last week? We looked last week at chapter 8 in the book of the Acts. Oh, yeah, Philip. I know, it was three weeks ago. It was. Trudy. No, look at your Bible. I think that's great. It's an open book test. <laughs> That's right. And Philip, I, I was saying before, I think he's like a superhero. And so it's like, he's here. He's here. He's flashing all around. He's running up uh, alongside the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. I kind of imagine, it's very likely the chariot was stopped, but the way Luke tells it, I sort of imagine that the chariot was running, and there he is running up against it. There's a story of Elijah um, running alongside the chariot of Ahab, the horrible king, you kind of think, oh, he actually running alongside the chariot, running faster than any, yeah, horses could naturally, you know, so. But whether that's the case or not, one of the big, do you remember one of the big things that's significant about Philip's ministry there in chapter 8? First of all, where is Philip ministering in chapter 8? Samaria. Samaria, that's right, so Jerusalem's here, right? sort of. Samaria is north. Samaria is both a city and a region. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And they were taken into exile before the the Judeans, the the southern kingdom of Judah. They were taken away by the um, Assyrians about 150 years before the southern kingdom. What the Assyrians did in their empire was they took the people out of the land that they had just conquered and then they infused the land with people from other places. So the people in Samaria had Jewish roots, but what they did was they incorporated the religious practices of other religions into their worship of Yahweh. And that was anathema, of course, to the Lord and the more um, religiously pure Jews in the southern kingdom condemned them for it, especially in the, by the first centuries. They were like the half-step cousin that betrayed the family, basically. They were seen as having um, polluted the faith and polluted the blood of the fathers, the patriarchs, 
um, by marrying, they had not they had not married just other Jewish people. They had married with um, intermarried with other peoples. So guys, so first in Samaria, what happens in Samaria with Philip? <laughs> it's a pretty good formula. It happens all throughout Acts. He finds people. He preaches about Jesus. And they heal. And what happens? They come to believe, right? And they receive the Holy Spirit. Exactly. So there's this. They come to faith in Samaria. How is it? Do we any thought about why is it that Philip is outside of Jerusalem? How does Philip get outside of Jerusalem and Judea? There's something that happens in chapter 7, and it pushes the followers of Jesus out and away from Jerusalem, which is where everything happened, where Jesus was crucified, um, rose from the dead, and where he ascended into heaven. Um, so what is... That's right, Barbara. So there's this persecution that's happening, and it's horrible, this horrible suffering... And yet, what it does is it pushes the disciples out of Jerusalem, and they go out, and wherever they go, there the gospel goes too, and there people come to believe in Jesus. So while the suffering was horrible and difficult and um, troubling, they were not discouraged. They continued to preach the good news, and God worked through this spreading out of the disciples to spread the gospel. So you see, it's going out to out to Samaria. We're going to find out in our chapter for today that there are some that went all the way, like Damascus would be way up here, all the way up to Damascus. Um, where does Philip appear after he is in Samaria? It says same chapter, same chapter eight. Can you find it? I'm, I'll wait. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, he went into Gaza. That's right. That's chapter 8. Do you want to give us the verse? So here he's on the road, and that's where he finds the Ethiopian eunuch, because the Ethiopian eunuch has just been in Jerusalem. He's headed back home to Ethiopia, which was modern day, like Cush, Egypt. He's headed back there. We all know the Gaza, if you watch the news, Gaza is right there on the Mediterranean on the way to Ethiopia. This marker is unhappy. So what's happening, do you see what's happening is that here... I, you know how I kind of get, have you ever noticed this, that I get sort of obsessed about one particular phrase for a while and I'll apply it to everything? Well, the catch word, the phrase for the year for me is concentric circles. I'm so interested in concentric circles because there are different things happening, but what, and when I see them happening like this, in concentric circles, in nest, like nesting dolls, what is at the very heart of it? So here, geographically, as the gospel spreading out like shockwaves, out, out, out. Where is it heading out from? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the epicenter, the heart of what has happened, the heart of where 
um, the events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, the events of salvation have taken place in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's the epicenter, and there are these shock waves going out that are going to affect the whole world. And this is what Jesus says to the disciples in chapter 1. He says, um, in chapter 1, yeah, no, please. Oh, Acts, sorry. In chapter 1 of Acts, remember that Jesus was with the disciples, and he is about to up, up, and away, go and go and gone, ascend into heaven, and he prepares them for what's going to happen next when he says in verse 8, and I have this on your outline. That's right. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is, um, Jesus is telling them what's going to happen, and what we're seeing in Acts is that it is happening. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says, Judea, you'll be my witnesses to Judea. Well, that's right outside Jerusalem. That's the region around Jerusalem. And then what else does he say? In Samaria? Oh, Philip got Samaria. And even towards the south, and to the ends of the earth. You know, the known world for them was the Mediterranean Basin and a little bit over here in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. So he's saying everywhere that you know of that exists will hear the good news about Jesus. And you're going to be my witnesses to those different places. So um, what we're going to see by the end of the book of Acts is that Paul ends up in Rome by chapter 28. And Paul, the great evangelist, the great apostle to the Gentiles, when he ends up in Rome, you get this sense, this is it. This is the ends of the earth. This is the capital of the universe. Now Jesus is going to be worshipped and proclaimed here. There will be those who follow him here. The word of the Lord is being fulfilled. God says, I'm going to do this, and then he does it. And you see it happening in, like throughout the book of Acts. So Jesus is proclaiming it, and by the end of Acts, we're going to see it. Okay, any questions about that? Okay, well, let's look at Saul. Who's Saul? Saul is Paul. What is that about? What do you think that's about? He's what? He's bad. Saul's bad, Paul's good. He has a name change, and he has a change of heart, and we're going to read about that today. More than just a change of heart, he's transformed. Um, but what is? why do you think he has two names? Well, it's a, isn't it a language thing? I mean, it's a Latinizing of Saul. Yeah, so Saul, who's Saul in the Old Testament? Do you remember who Saul is? The king, yeah. The king, the first king of Israel, the bad king, before, or he starts out good, but then he disobeys the Lord, and then he starts to persecute David who's the next anointed king. The Lord has two anointed kings at once. And David won't touch Saul, but Saul's trying to kill David. Remember that from 1 Samuel. So Saul is a Jewish name, a Hebrew name. Paul was a Greek name. Have you ever met someone who's bilingual or bicultural? Maybe someone who has emigrated from another country? Yeah, (laughs) I know you have, Catherine. (laughs) You're married to someone from another country. (laughs) Um, In college, I went to a Christian college, and a lot of my friends in college were not from 
U.S., or maybe they had only been in the U.S. for one generation, because there are a lot of Christians from other parts of the world who end up coming to college in the States. And um, one air, part of the world in particular where there are a lot of Christians within the last, who've come to faith within the last hundred years, but really the last like 50 or 60 years, is Korea. There are, it, have you ever met a Korean Christian? There are lots of Korean Christians, especially Presbyterians, but of many other denominations. There's been an explosion of Christianity in Korea. I don't know when, I don't know the history of when it began, but so when I would meet these <coughs> friends in college who were Korean Christians, I knew that I knew that Korean was their first language, even if they were born in the States. Their parents had likely been the ones who had emigrated, and so they'd spoken Korean at home. And so I'd meet them, and I, one of my <laughs> favorite things to do, you know, I'd meet this girl, and she'd say, hi, my name's Anne. And I'd say, I knew her name was not Anne. Right? Anne was her American name. I wanted to know what her Korean name was because that was probably what her parents called her. There's something about that name. What is that name that your parents called you? Um, I love coming here, and there are so many sisters and brothers and chips off the old block and um, bitsies and things like that that are so cute, such cute nicknames. And I always want to ask, okay, what's your, what's your given name and what is the name that your parents called you. There's something about that name, whether it was your given name or just your nickname, there's one of those names that's more intimate to you. Well, Saul and Paul, in the, in the first century, there were so many cultures coming together and languages coming together. When Alexander the Great extended his empire, his language of Greek became the language spoken by people of other ethnicities all throughout the empire. It was a common denominator, just like the way you can go to France today and try to speak your French and practice your French. They will just look at you and speak English. And you think, <laughs> there go all those lessons. Forget about it, <laughs> because they're so good at speaking English all throughout Europe, all throughout Asia, all throughout Africa. They're in Latin America. Latin America is more Spanish. But they're speaking English because, because it's how you do business in, the glo- in our global economy. So um, here in the first century, Greek was the language that you spoke if you were trying to engage with people of other cultures. Everyone spoke Greek. But then within the Jewish community, um, some Jewish communities had forgotten their Hebrew, their language of origin, and they only spoke Greek. Um, And they got got into trouble when they were trying to read the scriptures. And we know this because throughout the Mediterranean basin, there were Greek, you know, Greek-speaking Jews all around the Mediterranean basin, and they'd forgotten their Hebrew, so they needed a translation of the Bible into Greek. So in the first century B.C., about 100 years before Jesus' birth, they came up with this translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint, if you ever hear anyone talking about that. So all that to say, the Jewish people of the first century had to engage with so many different other cultures that they probably had spoke multiple languages, and they probably also had multiple names, so they could fit in. Hi, my name's Anne. I know your name is something I cannot pronounce, but she's being nice to me and telling me her name's Anne, so that I can <laughs> engage with her and relate to her. <laughs> so it's very likely there are so many people in Scripture with multiple names, and someone's written this whole book about it that I find fascinating. So I won't go into it too much more because I can geek out on it. Yeah. Why does Aramaic fit in? Um, when I say Hebrew, I mean Aramaic, because the scripture was written in Hebrew, but it's likely that the Hebrew 
speaking Jews were actually speaking the dialect of Aramaic, which was kind of developed while they were in exile in Babylon. That's where it kind of it changed, where the language changed a little bit, and then when they got back from exile back into the, into the Holy Land, that that's kind of what they spoke more than a pure Hebrew. Does that make sense? Even though they could still read Hebrew. Okay, so Saul and Paul, he probably has two names, but we see it also with Peter and Simon. Simon Peter. Simon is the Hebrew name. Peter's the Greek name. But but the writers of the New Testament, the Lord makes it clear that this change in name is significant. He's highlighting the change in name, especially with Simon Peter. You know, the Lord says to Peter, um, you are Peter. Whether he had that name before or after, he's saying, you are a rock. Um, and he's highlighting Simon Peter's rockiness, his steadfastness, his bullheadedness, whatever it is that you want to understand it as. So Saul and Paul, we, do, we will see a name change. We're not sure entirely what it means, but something happens to him, and his purpose has changed. His purpose has, will change from being um, the most righteous Jew imaginable, the most perfect Jewish, the pinnacle of Jewish manhood, um, the most righteous and zealous Jew to being someone who is trying to bridge the gap and bring Gentiles into following Jesus. And so his Gentile name, his Greek name, Paul, very likely was helpful for him as he was preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Okay, any questions about that? Okay. Paul, Saul, remember that when Stephen was persecuted, when Stephen was martyred, the, those who were stoning him laid their coats at the feet of Saul. Saul was approving of his persecution. And then we find out in chapter 8, remember how Philip got out of Jerusalem. They all had to get out. Well, there, appro- there was a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 8. And Saul is involved in persecuting the church. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Saul is zealously protecting and preserving the tradition, the Jewish traditions. He believes he is right in um, stamping out what he perceives to be blasphemy. Remember that Jesus made some pretty outrageous claims during his lifetime. Anyone who says, oh, he's a good man, and he's a good man who never said he was the son of God, well, they haven't read scripture because Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, every single one of the Gospels, is making claims of divinity. And you see, remember last year in John's Gospel, it's miraculous, they don't kill him sooner. The Lord protects and preserves him up until the point so that his death would be the death that that the Lord um, had ordained for it to be. Um, so all of that to say um, that Saul believes he's right, believes he's obeying the law um, to the uttermost by stamping out this heresy, this blasphemy. Any questions about that before we read? Was he a policeman? He wasn't a policeman, no. no. Why was he given this authority to go into houses and well, drag he, people out? He was a religious leader. In the, he was probably young. So he, he wasn't an elder yet within, within the leaders of the religious, you know. Remember that the Sanhedrin is the leader, the 70 leaders governing Israel, um, now under the thumb of Rome, but still governing Israel. And it was composed of different factions, Sadducees, the Pharisees, um, the scribes, the elders. 
But the Pharisees in particular were those who studied the law, very specifically studied the Torah, and sought to enforce it around, uh, around all of the different Jewish communities, not just in Jerusalem, but all around wherever there was a Jewish synagogue and a Jewish community of people. They sought to enforce obedience to the law. So he's enforcing so obedience to the law. he kind of had probably a gang of some guys with him, and they just went around yeah. collecting people. There's yeah, there's yeah. a lot of, you see that there's a lot of mob rule. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens when even in stones. Right. Basically, the Jewish people were not allowed the right of capital punishment under Roman rule. The Romans yeah. took that away from all of their conquered people. Only we can kill people. That's terrible to think that. But they, they turned a blind eye when the Jewish people did something like stone Stephen for religious reasons because that was such a part of their heritage and they believed that as this holy people of God and this holy nation, um, that was the only way to stamp <coughs> out the heresy. That's so different. Remember, this is specifically for the age when Israel is meant to show forth God's holiness and his righteousness. And so anything that does not show forth the truth of who God is, any blasphemy, needs to be um, shut out. And so... Um, Today, what that means is we won't allow someone to teach. You know, we won't allow someone to get within, how does this break down to Cathedral Church of the Advent? We won't, you know, if we know that there's something that's not right according to Scripture, well, they're not going to have a podium. But that's the extent of the violence. That's it, you know. There's no room for that kind of violence today. And there's no room for that kind of violence within the Christian church. So excommunication today looks very different than excommunication for the Jewish people of God during the specific era when they're meant to show forth to all the other nations what the character of God's holiness looks like. Does that help with the violence? Mm-hmm. Okay. Any other questions? I'm sort of answering a question that you didn't ask. By <coughs> saying all of that. Okay. Okay, let's get ready to read. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. It's quarter of, and we're just reading now. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias. Yes, the Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you arrive, ask for Saul of Tarsus. He is praying to me right now. Shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. As the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of God to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and went to Tarsus and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you in the world by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. Immediately he preached to Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on the name, who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them down to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gate day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Is it just me or are they especially loud today? Feels like the. Yeah, okay. Sorry about that. Um, yes. Yes. The Hellenists were those. Um, just show me the verse that you're looking at, too, Lenore. Verse 29. Yeah. 
Do you remember back when Stephen was martyred? That there were two, not just even when Stephen was martyred, but go back even further to when they needed deacons to serve the widows of the Hellenist Christians. So there within that early Christian community, everyone was Jewish, but there were two different circles within the Jewish community, Jewish Christian community. One were those who spoke Hebrew, remember, Saul, and others who spoke Greek primarily. Um, we think that some might have, the Greek ones might have been from, might have not lived in Jerusalem, but were there for the feast, or um, they, they were just more culturally engaged with Greek culture than the Hebrew, um, the Hebrew Jews. So the Hebrew speaking or the Hebrew mindset Jews were against everything Greek, against this, against that, and the Hellenists were more open to it. Does that make sense? And so within, and they had clearly divided themselves into those two groups, the two mindsets, two ways of engaging or disengaging with other cultures, with specifically Greek culture and Roman culture. So the Hellenists are a group that are actually, even for their disengagement or their engagement with Greek culture, they're very zealous. And what we see is that Stephen is preaching to them, Stephen gets in trouble preaching to them about Jesus because they're very upset. They believe he's preaching against the temple and against Moses. And he is because he's saying, remember in his speech, in his sermon, he's saying that Moses and the temple are obsolete because their purpose is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So they felt like that was blasphemy, and that's why they stoned him. So they're the primary group that stoned Stephen within. So there are four groups, if you think about this. Hebrew Jewish Christians, Hellenistic Jewish Christians, Hebrew Jewish non-Christians, Hellenistic Jewish non-Christians. And the Hellenistic (coughs) Jewish non-Christians are persecuting the Hellenistic Jewish Does that make sense? And the Hellenistic Jewish Christians and the Hebraistic Jewish Christians are trying to figure out how to be as unified as possible, even though they have some differences. And there's been sort of a divide. And is the Hellenistic the non-circumcised ones? They were all circumcised. They were all. They would have all been circumcised. Okay, so we're still just dealing with the Jewish. Oh yeah, totally, totally. But what's interesting is you see how they deal with division within the body of Christ even now when they have so much in common but there's still some differences is going to influence how they deal with the Samaritans who are even further out there and an Ethiopian eunuch and then we're going to see in the next couple of chapters that suddenly the Gentiles are going to be included and we see this all throughout the rest of the New Testament what do we do now? Can you believe that God's promises to us as the people of God, the Jewish people of God, is extended to Gentiles, and what do we do with that? Okay, does that help? Yeah, please. In this context, this dispute is against the Hellenists. Yes. What does the Hellenists quote show that this was part of his mission to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. These are Hellenistic Jews, and they're upset with Paul because he's now become a Christian. He used to be friends with them and completely share their ideology. Mm-hmm. And now he's, he has become a Christian, and he's preaching what those dumb Christians were preaching. 
Jewish Christians. And so they're arguing with him, disputing with him, and they're going to start persecuting him unless he gets out of Jerusalem. So that's why the other Jewish Christians say, come on, Paul, you've got to go back home. Go to Tarsus for now until you can come back and preach to these people. But you've got to get out of here because they're going to kill you. And we don't want them to kill you like they kill students. These Hellenists in chapter, in this verse, they're not even Gentile. They're Jews. They're just a particular kind of Jew. Does that help? Yeah. Well, what about today? Yeah. Orthodox Jews. Yeah. Are they Hellenists? No. No. Well, I don't think it matters. These categories from the first century, they don't translate directly. I would say maybe, the, I would say be more like the Reformed ones are Hellenistic in the Orthodox or would maybe be more like Hebraic, just in terms of traditional adherence to the Mosaic Law and dealing with an external culture that's almost invading Jewish culture that from outside. And how do you engage or disengage? We feel that today as Christians. I mean, just look at the media and TV. I'm like, that is not Christian. How do I deal with that? Do I engage it? Do I disengage it? How do I... Is that... These are all really important questions um, about Christ and culture. How do we engage across other cultures? But let's, let's dig in and really look at what happens to Saul on the road to Damascus. Um, he has been breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord in verse 1. We hear that. That's very, a very strong, very strong language to describe the persecution that he is sponsoring and, under, and um, doing against the disciples of the Lord. And he goes to the high priest, asks him for letters. This is basically the ancient equivalent of extradition. These Jewish Christians had fled Jerusalem and were in Damascus, and he wants to bring them back so that they can be tried and executed in Jerusalem. He is he's going to great lengths to persecute and bring back these Jewish Christians. Um, isn't it interesting, again, remember that before I said with chapter 8, it's so specific, men and women. Something is going on with the women in the Jewish Christian community, this first baby Christian church. Something's happening with the women that wasn't happening before the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it, make, it, it makes those super traditionalists, Jewish traditionalists, pretty upset. There's something going on because Saul feels the need to bring men and women back to have them persecuted. Remember that the women were able, they were free to sit at the feet of Jesus while he was on the cross, to stay at the base of the cross without any fear of retribution. Clearly, um, they would not be crucified if they were identified with Jesus, whereas the men were hiding because it was very likely that they would be crucified if they were identified with Jesus. Something has happened to make these women become a threat, become dangerous. Um, So, um, looking at this, he goes on the road to Damascus, and there he is with his companions. There's a light flashing from heaven around him, and he falls to the ground. I love that it is as though he's going in pride. He knows that he is going to get these people. He's going to do, he believes entirely that what he's doing is right. Um, And the Lord humbles him. He falls to the ground. The Lord arrests him 
it stops him in his tracks. He's humbled. He's, I imagine him face down on the road, hitting the deck because of this bright and flashing light, the holiness shining around him, this vision that he has. And he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What does this mean? Why is Jesus saying that Saul is persecuting him? Isn't Saul persecuting the members of the body of Christ who are following Jesus? Jesus here is identifying so closely with those who are in him by faith. He's saying that if you're persecuting them, it's like you're persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? And he's saying, um, he's revealing to um, Saul that he really is who he said he was. He really is the Son of God, crucified, risen, ascended, Lord over all. Saul talks about his apostleship. The token of first century apostleship was having seen the risen Lord Jesus. And this is his qualifier. He has seen the risen Lord Jesus. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, the Lord Jesus revealed himself to him. And that is um, part of his badge of approval, his seal of approval for preaching the gospel. He is an apostle who has seen the risen Lord Jesus. He sees Jesus, though the other men with him don't see him. Um, and they take him up and they bring him into Damascus. I love this language in, um, in verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. A, bl a blind person, someone who's truly blind, they do have, their eyes are open, but it's almost as though their eyes were closed. Well, he who had been spiritually blind now can see the truth about Jesus. Um, his eyes are opened. I think that's not just physical, but metaphorical. The eyes of his heart, the eyes of his mind were open to who Jesus is, and now he's physically blind. It was a swap. He had been spiritually blind and physically able to see, and now he spiritually has sight, um, even while for, for a short time he's physically blind. And this physical blindness gives him time to reflect and process, and it, it sort of marks this transformation that the Lord has brought about in his life. Um, <clears throat> so um, just really quickly, isn't it interesting how Ananias, is told by the Lord to go and get him and lay hands on him. Can you imagine if you were Ananias? You know this man is coming to kill you. And the Lord tells you to go and, <laughs> and minister to him and go right into the lion's den. It took great faith and obedience for Ananias to do what the Lord asked him to do, to go and to, um, to welcome Paul into the community of Christians there in Damascus. Um, but the Lord says to Ananias, um, part of his plans for Paul, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Um, he has purposes for Paul, and part of his purposes will involve suffering. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Part of proclaiming the gospel involves suffering, and Paul talks about it in his letters, how he was beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, Stoned. All of these things happened to Paul because of his faith in Jesus, because of his boldness in proclaiming Jesus. Um, and part of his willingness to suffer like this, you see in um, 
in the next few verses that the suffering begins through those Hellenists when he gets back to Jerusalem. They um, are persecuting him. And even before that in Damascus, as he's preaching, the people there, the Jews there, are persecuting him. He had to be let down. He who was such an amazing, proud man, he had to be let down in such a humiliating way, down in a basket like a baby over the walls of Damascus. He's hiding. Um, But somehow they must have known they needed to preserve his life, that the Lord had great purposes for him. They're preserving his life. Um, And he's experiencing this suffering already. The persecutor is now the one persecuted. Um, He who had approved of the stoning of Stephen is now beginning to undergo persecution, and yet with great joy. That's what you see in all of his letters, that he knows that that is part of what God has called him to because it's part of the purposes that God has for his life and for all of the lives um, that will be touched through his ministry. So what is it that changes Paul so radically from um, this persecutor of Christians to one who wholeheartedly believes and accepts Jesus and is so bold in proclaiming him. I think when I was growing up in Sunday school, yeah, Donna. I was going to say it was just the voice, you know, of of Jesus, the Christ, just reaching out to him and he was receptive, which is amazing to me of his receptivity, despite... The Lord breaks through his receptivity. Yes. There are two different ways to look at conversion. And I, I would ask you, what was your own conversion experience like? Is there a point in time where you could say, I wasn't a Christian until that point, and then I actually became a Christian? Or was it so gradual that you didn't have a point? And that's okay. Um, but the Lord brings about change in our hearts, and it's his work operating from outside of us um, with Paul, Saul, there are two other times in the book of Acts, and we're going to look again at his conversion later on twice, because he talks about his conversion, he bears witness and testifies about his conversion, and he talks about kicking against the goads, as though he'd been resisting the Lord for so long, and finally the Lord breaks through, and in that there is a certain passivity in that, that he's been, he's been kicking against the goads, he's been persecuting Jesus, and Jesus graciously breaks through his defenses, um, blinds him with the truth um, while he's been ignoring it and um, allowing it to crowd to his peripheral vision so he doesn't have to examine it. The Lord over overcomes him, overtakes him on the road, and um, overwhelms him with the truth of who he is and what he's done. And you've got to imagine that Jesus appearing to him there, whenever Jesus appeared um, to, following his resurrection, He's not just in the flesh, but he also bears on his body still the wounds from the cross. He is revealing those to Saul. When Saul saw him, he would have likely seen those wounds in Jesus' body and then also the glory of his resurrection body. Um, So one of the things that um, I love is, well, first of all, what is it that changes Calvin? John Calvin says about Saul, that he was a ravaging wolf, stealing and harming and killing the sheep of the flock. What is it that transforms him into um, not just a sheep, but a caring shepherd? Well, yeah. It's Jesus' verse. I know, I know. I know. Well, isn't it wonderful that God is so gracious as to give him the ears to hear his voice? and then give him the opportunity to hear his voice. 
I know, isn't that significant? I'm sure Luke is telling us three days, and you know, sure he's telling us that specific information for that reason that it's um, analogous to the three days when Jesus was in the tomb. That there's this transformation happening. Um, also, there are two ways of understanding your conversion. Um, did you say yes, or did the did you choose God, or did God choose you? Some people undergo an examination where they sort of say weigh out the ideas of Christianity and say, do I believe, do I not believe? Um, And so they'll feel as though when they say, yes, I believe, they themselves have been the one to make the choice. But very often that same person, when you ask them years later, who made the choice? Was it you or, or, or did you feel helpless in the face of the options presented to you? They very often will say, God chose me. I didn't choose him. And both are true, but God in his sovereignty He's eternal. He's all-powerful. So me even feeling like I could choose him (laughs) is um, maybe how it might seem to me, and yet he is so beyond uh, my own choice. He's so all-powerful that he knows that I'm going to choose him. He is choosing me well in advance. You think of, um, and to look at this, I think of marriage. Um, For those of you who are married, can you look back? Who knew first that you were right for each other? Did you choose him or did he choose you? Or did it kind of happen, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it a little bit like that? Um, Well, in conversion, in our relationship with God, it's a little bit like the chicken and the egg. Sometimes it feels as though we're choosing God. Um, Sometimes it feels as though he himself is breaking through. So um, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about conversion and he talks about conversion his own conversion and he says that God relentlessly pursued him like the great angler playing his fish um, like a cat chasing a mouse like a pack of hounds closing in on a fox and finally like a divine chess player maneuvering him into the most disadvantageous positions until in the end he concedes checkmate have you ever felt hemmed in by God? Hemmed in to the point where you say, I give up. I will trust in you. <laughs> I, I think of this um, certainly with my conversion, but I think of it anytime I'm um, kind of distant from God and not really listening or minding, not really paying attention. Very often there will be circumstances in my life that require me to throw my hands up in the air and say, I've got nothing. I'm going to have to rely on you for this one. And I just imagine the Lord being like, yes. Finally, (laughs) I'm so glad you said yes. I've been pursuing you. I've been hemming you in, getting you to rely on me for so long. Thank goodness you said yes. So there is that feeling of being hemmed in that you have no other choice. I often think of the disciples when they first encountered Jesus. Um, Well, in chapter 6 of John, remember, there are all these people who have been following Jesus who are disciples who hear his hard words. And John tells us, they, they, they say, I'm done. I don't want any more of this Jesus stuff. I'm going to walk away. And they walk away, and Jesus turns to the apostles, and he says, do you want to go away too? And they say to him, where can we go? (laughs) You have the words of eternal life. And so I often feel like that. Where can I go? I've had such a taste of God's goodness and his mercy. Where else can I find that nourishment for my soul? Where else can I find that grace extended to me except in in and through Jesus Christ. So our conversion, and indeed our conversions happen the whole of our lives. 
It's not just one moment. There might be one moment where we can say, I was not a Christian, and then I was. Um, but our whole lives are this turning. Conversion is turning, um, just like repentance is turning. And that happens throughout the course of all of our earthly lives. And sometimes it does feel as though um, the choice of choosing to live for God is actually a free choice, that we're hemmed in, bound by our sin, and that uh, um, finally letting go and trusting in God feels like a breath of fresh air, um, like a liberating breath. So C.S. Lewis, who had already talked about being pursued by God, he also talks about feeling um, when he was relying on his own strength, like he was wearing some kind of stiff clothing, like a corset or a suit of armor, or um, he says he felt like a lobster with his exoskeleton. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, although I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable. This is the corset of unbelief and distrust. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. <laughs> Is that good? And so um, he talks, this conversion of St. Paul is a conversion all about the sovereign grace of God. There he was um, about to go and commit murder. And the Lord graciously intercepts him, stops him in his tracks when he's about to do something evil, when he is on the road to continue to do this evil thing. The Lord stops him in his tracks. He shines the light into his heart. That light of Christ is shining. Remember, there was a blinding light that he saw. And that blinding light um, overwhelms him. The, um, the light shines into him, and that light is a gracious light, revealing darkness for what it is, dispelling darkness. So the light shone upon him, shone into his heart, and then the grace of God overwhelmed him and swept over him like a flood. He's carried away now. His fate is no longer his own. His life is no longer his own. And there is grace and goodness in that. Um, and so that's how it is for us, too. Whether you have a moment where you can look at and say, that was the moment where I became a Christian, or whether you felt carried along kind of gradually by the Lord, conversion is grace, God's grace extended to us in Jesus Christ. His mercy, um, even as we have done wrong or thought wrong or disbelieved his mercy is extended to us in Jesus Christ and his light shines into the darkness of our hearts and then we're transformed and given very graciously given a purpose to love and obey him to proclaim him um, to serve him and that idea of service is a grace in and of itself because it means that then we have um, someone outside of ourselves we no longer live for ourselves um, we're no longer trapped in this bondage of me, me, me all the time, even though sometimes we, like a dog, going back to its own vomit, go back to that. But he graciously again intercepts us again and again and again and frees us. Any thoughts, questions, rebuttals, Liz?
I don't think he was actually on a horse because he had to be really rich to be on a horse. But I kind of think of him as being the Lord, like knocking him off his high horse. And he's flat on his face on the road. Who are you? Oh, I get it. Fear of the Lord moment. It is totally a fear of the Lord moment. (laughs) Whoa, whoa is me. I was doing, I was persecuting you. What was I thinking? Any other thoughts? Okay, let me pray for us. So, dear Lord God, thank you. Thank you for um, thank you for your servant Saul, whom you arrested on the road and transformed and through whom you brought the gospel to Gentiles like us. You brought the gospel to us because of faithful servants and apostles like Paul. Um, and even so, Lord, wherever we are in our walk with you, would you even today... Arrest each one of us. Blind us with the blinding light of your love and mercy extended to us in Jesus. Blind us um, from uh, those things that would distract us. Um, Arrest us in our selfishness, in our autonomy, in our sense of pride, Lord. Um, Even as we're humbled, Lord, lift us up. Um, Bring us, carry us along on the flood of your own mercy. Um, and carry us along into whatever it is you have for us today, Lord. Overwhelm us with your love. Carry us along. Um, We ask this for your glory's sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.